Welcome to Brand New Podcast. Matt cannot join us tonight, but I am joined uh, with Mike Ginsberg, good friend of mine. Good to have you on, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. He's on, he's on State Central doing great work. How, how are you feeling about uh, 2020? I think it's going to be close. I mean, I think most people think it's going to be close. Um, I, you know, I feel like um, I think we're going to surprise people because I think the campaign, certainly the Republican campaigns, from what I see, have been putting in a lot more spade work and a lot more shoe leather Mm -hmm. uh, than the Democrats have. And I think uh, hopefully that I I think it will uh, will pay off on Election Day. I was actually really surprised. You know, I mean, I know, look, COVID's going on, but you can still do door knocking safely. And I think it's a dramatic mistake um, for at least, you, you know, I mean, I really can't speak to Warner's campaign. I haven't seen anybody from Warner's campaign, but I mean, Mark Warner almost got taken out by a Gillespie, you know, cause he, and now he's, I think he's learned that lesson. He, you, you see him, he's putting out ads now on TV, but he or Biden, I haven't seen one door knocker. Uh, you know, I, I haven't seen it. And I think that is a dramatic mistake, even if Virginia goes blue. Yeah, no, I mean, I think th- these are the sort of kind of voter contacts. I think that, that, you know, the face-to-face voter contacts are much more valuable than, um, you know, the ads or the signs or, or all the sort of virtual things that the, uh, the Biden campaign has been doing. Um, and I think it also will lay groundwork not only for this year, but for future years. And I think that one of the things I've really liked about the Trump campaign this year is that they really have been focused on uh, creating data that will outlive the campaign. I mean, they, they are focused on, um, you know, building something that to last. And, and that, that is a, a good approach and uh, one that's welcome and really needed here in Virginia. I think, I think that, I mean, that actually leads me to my next segue because I think a lot of Republicans, we can't put all our eggs in one basket. Right. And I think it is a mistake to say, Oh, there's no way like Trump could lose or, Daniel Gay could lose or, you know, like it, that's a mistake. You need to prepare right. for the future. Absolutely. You know, and 2021, we have, you know, an emerging, exciting crop of candidates, excluding Amanda Chase. But we have, but we have, especially for lieutenant governor, some good names jumping in. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think we've got great candidates and, you know, we've got great candidates, you know, throughout the ballot in 2020. I mean, we have, um, you know, in the first district, we've got Rob Whitman. Um, You know, who's a, you know, I do a lot of suburban stuff. I mean, he's a a great suburban candidate, Um, done a lot for, you know, both a a, a sort of common sense guy, you know, big, um, you know, big supporter of the, you know, military preparedness, um, environmentalism. I mean, he's really sort of. uh, We'll say we had we had Rob on and we had Kasim on and, um, you know, both nice men. I do think, though, that that race is going to be closer, I think, than people think. I think Cossum's a really talented guy in closing yeah, I, that gap. I, right. Well, that, that may be. I mean, I think one of the things Rob sort of has going for him is, mm-hmm. you know, his experience. And um, obviously, you know, I mean, again, you know, his, his work with the Suburban Caucus, sure. his work on, um, you know, a lot of the um, – uh, like the NDAA and, and the, the work he's done for military preparedness, particularly, you know, that, which is so important here in sure. Virginia. Um, you know, so those are all, all very valuable things. The VA center that he's, he's brought to that district. 
Um, and I think, you know, that that sort of that trickle down, you know, both, you know, the Trump level and, and the work that his campaign is doing is going to really redound to the benefit of our 2021 candidates. And I think the fact that, you know, we have, um, you know, suburban candidates running in 2020, if they can show the way to succeed, that will be valuable lessons to take for 2021. Absolutely. I mean, uh, my good friend, Alicia Andrews, she's, you know, yeah. running in the 10th. She's sure. you know, appealing directly to, you know, that the suburban mom, which Absolutely. is which is a key voter that we lost. And I mean, you know, you also you're a core member of SUV GOP. You yeah. know, why did you guys kind of create that? And why is it so important to, you know, because you guys exist because, you yeah. know, quite frankly, in 2016, we took a hit in the suburbs, not yeah, just in Virginia, taking- nationwide. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it predates 2016. I mean, you go back to 2013 and the, um, the, yeah, the Cuccinelli race. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, really the high water mark for the Republicans in the suburbs was 2009, uh, and the Bob McDonald mm-hmm. bowling Cuccinelli. The good old uh, days. But if, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it only took a decade for, you know, that to happen both at the, this, you know, the, the 2013, uh, and then like you said, 2014, I mean, Ed Gillespie came really close um, but that was in a very favorable Republican environment. Um, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, sort of steadily, we saw our numbers in the suburbs go down. Uh, so we do really need to rethink to some degree how we um, approach that suburban electorate. And that's why I say, I mean, we, when you have a candidate, you know, the Whitmans of the world, the Ann Wagners from, from Missouri, you know, the folks who are, are, are building that suburban. Your caucus. boy, Larry Hogan up in Maryland. Larry Hogan. I mean, you know, you don't have to be Charlie Baker in in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that they're, you know, somewhat sort of heterodox Republicans in some ways, although I think Rob Whitman and, and, um, you know, Ann Wagner probably would be viewed as, you know, mainstream conservatives, whereas Charlie Baker and and Larry Hogan might be. I feel like Whitman's gotten to adapt better than maybe like a Hogan or Baker would be able to. But Virginia maybe gives them that cushion a little bit. Well, it's a different electorate. You know, Larry Hogan has a very different electorate than Charlie Baker has, than Mm -hmm. Rob Whitman has, than Ann Wagner has. But those suburbanites, you know, those suburbanites that who who are willing to vote both both parties and really will look carefully at the candidates, um, you know, those folks uh, are gettable for the Republican Party and you know, some some of the, the things that these these folks have done, I think, have shown the way to do that. And hopefully, depending on how things turn out, um, you know, we we will have that map for 2021. How do you feel about this assessment? My assessment is, you know, because people are like, well, how do we win Northern Virginia? And people try yeah. and shore out and turn out votes maybe in, sure. in Southwest yeah. or Central. And it just doesn't sure. work without making a dent in Northern Virginia. Would you, you know, you you're a Maryland native. Would you, I don't think they're all too different running in Northern Virginia versus running in Maryland. Demographically, it's almost identical. It's, there are similarities. There are definite similarities between Virginia and Maryland. Those have increased over the last several years. I think partly, you know, frankly, Northern Virginia is very similar now to uh, what the D.C. suburbs of Maryland are, you know, the Montgomery counties, the Prince George's counties. Um, you have a lot, frankly, of federal government workers mm-hmm. um, who have a different view of politics than others might. Um, and you also have uh, an influx of folks that uh, maybe are a little more involved with the government and so have you know, very, very different views. But you have a lot of people coming in from other states. 
so so they sort of import their political views. But I, I also think that there is a, a trend in the suburbs um, that, that we do need to address in terms of uh, the issues that we run on and not necessarily the positions that we have, but the issues that we choose to emphasize in the course of our campaigns. You know, a suburban electorate just has, you know, certain things it cares about. A rural electorate has things it cares about. Um, you know, Maryland is similar to Virginia in that statewide, you look at it, you've got Baltimore and the D.C. suburbs, which are heavily Democratic, and you have yeah. the more rural eastern shore and, you know, western Maryland um, uh, that are, are more Republican. And Virginia is similar, right? You've got the northern Virginia D.C. suburbs, you've got Richmond, and you've got Tidewater. Tidewater, you know, yeah, Virginia Beach. And then you've got rural Virginia. But, but that, that sort of urban-rural divide is, is um, that, I think, does carry across the United States. Yeah. Would you, would you say, I think, you know, 2021, I believe, is make or break. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had several candidates uh, for lieutenant governor on. Um, sure. You know, several candidates sure. you know, sure. for Congress. And sure. they have said that, you know, because of what the Democrats have done to stretch that rubber band, you know, so tight, tightly, whether it's cutting the police uh, by 25 percent, whether it is, um, you know, it's now a misdemeanor to assault a police officer. Sure. Right. You yep. know, uh, you know, a few years back with the, you know, the, the giant leap, it's not even a pro-choice bill uh, with their abortion bill. It really was way outside the. I would say mainstream Virginia um, and it's drift away from, I, you know, I would even say the corporate Democrat of Terry McAuliffe, the democratic party under um, filler corn and, and uh, Northam has drifted so far to the left. If we can't win in 2021, uh, Glenn Davis put it perfectly said, then that it's a wrap. It's like all these issues are handed to us. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I, I guess nothing is ever a wrap. I mean, uh -huh. yes, it, it might feel like a wrap, but I bet the Democrats were saying after 2009, boy, it feels like a wrap, you know, and here we are. So, you know, nothing is static. So you never you never want to say, well, it's over, it's over. But but I think he's right that, you know, we would have a substantial period of time in the wilderness if, um, you know, that the democratic majority in the general assembly sort of is frozen in concrete, you know, the, the yeah. concrete is sort of still drying, right? It's still a little wet, but it's drying. And if the, if the public, if the public reelects, you know, the, the current, uh, current Democrats that are there and, you know, maintains a, a, a statewide monopoly of, of statewide offices with the, with the Democrats, you know, they're going to get a, a heavy democratic, uh, um, it's going to be heavily democratic. And of course, you know, before we get to any of that, there's the constitutional amendment one. Yeah. Look, I mean, they can, you know, if they, which is getting bipartisan support, it's gotten Jennifer Lawrence's support. Well, well, if, if it goes down though, and the Democrats maintain control in 2021, mm -hmm. um, you know, forget it. We will be redistricted out of, you know, into very non-competitive. Uh, it very will non look like Maryland situation. where it's just Andy Harris, Right. Right. It's just Andy right. Harris and that's it. Right, right. But but, you know, what's going to end up happening is that, you know, it, what will have to happen, I suppose, is that the, the pub public is going to have to get fed up with Democratic governance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know what the, the the sort of the limit of tolerance on Democratic governance is. New York had one. I mean, they elected yeah. Giuliani. Absolutely. Um, you know, so, you know, place there is a limit to some of this stuff. Uh, well, I but, mean, in you your know, home state, I guess they 
you know, I guess they got fed up. They elected Ehrlich and then yep. went back to O'Malley and then it took O'Malley. Yep. I guess O'Malley is very similar to almost Northam in a way in terms of how they govern. Yeah, in some some sense. I mean, you know, O'Malley. Um, I think O'Malley, know, I guess, I think, was more of a leader. Well, I, I suppose he was more of a leader. You know, I mean, he didn't, didn't have any scandals in his closet. You know, didn't have yeah. any yearbooks he had to worry about. No. Um, as, you know, as far as we know. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think he had to sort of deal. He wasn't weakened by anything quite like that. Um, yeah. But I think also that, that people, you know, he raised taxes. He raised taxes enormously. Um, I don't think he was particularly inspiring. I think people people liked Hogan. I mean, that, the thing people forget yeah. is that Hogan is a general, a genuinely good campaigner and a likable guy. And the guy he ran against was sort of, you know, Anthony Brown, sort of the next man up. He's kind of stiff. He, well, he always he's, stuck he's, me as, you know, kind of standoffish. Well, I, I think his problem was there was no sort of compelling rationale for his candidacy other than, you know, I'm a Democrat. Um, I'm the heir apparent and vote for me. And, you know, Hogan, on the other hand, you know, he, he really was going to shake things up and, and especially the tax stuff. Um, that, that was a big deal there. There, you know, people, businesses were leaving, there were issues. So, you know, you're right. I mean, Maryland is a good example of a, an electorate that said enough's enough. Yeah. Um, where that limit is though, you never know. And you can do a lot of damage in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, because I've I've seen the story play out. You know, I mean, I was born in New York. I've lived in New mm-hmm. Jersey before, and I, I mm-hmm. Virginia is starting to have more in common. You know, because now even though there was Giuliani, there was Pataki. Now the Republican Party in New York's extinct, just about, except for a few congressional seats. You know, um, overall right. the statewide party is pretty weakened. Um, so you know, I I sadly see the same thing happening in Virginia. Um, you know, especially like you said, if, if, um, that amendment fails, I, we, we have to really keep up the fight. And, and one of the things that I think is important about SUDGOP, you guys seem to have laid the groundwork to go forward. You know, it's you guys. And then there's people (laughs) like Bob Good, right. You know, who wants to pull back? Well, I mean, I, I think our view is, you know, we, we set ourselves up really to be, um, and, and we support all Republicans. I mean, we are, you know, gen- we will put anybody's you know, Republican stuff in our newsletters, our announcements, you know, send it to us. We put it in. Um, but I think our, our approach has always been one of, um, you know, kind of a think tank almost in a way. You know, we didn't want to yeah. replicate uh, what the you know county committees do, what the city committees do. We, we don't want to replicate that. You know, that that exists. Uh, we wanted to take a hard look at why we were not doing as well as we used to in the suburbs. I mean, we, that used to be a bread and butter uh, electorate for us. Yeah. It just isn't anymore. And so, you know, we took a hard look at that from a sort of an academic almost perspective in, in our annual reports, you know, that we put out and also in our practical, you know, groundwork, you know, what trying to figure out what are the issues that people care about? What's the best way to approach a suburban voter? Um, yeah. You know, so, so that that has been and that's been sort of our narrow focus. So we haven't, you know, so, you know, you mentioned Bob Good. I mean, we haven't really looked yeah. at the fifth district. That's a very rural district. It's mm-hmm. it's a different electorate. And, and our focus has always been um, that suburban, I guess you could call it, you know, the 10th, the 11th, the yeah. eastern part of the 7th, you know, the, the folks exactly. in Rico, Chesterfield. I definitely um, think the 7th is definitely, a, you know, that's the type of, you know, race that needs to be invested yeah. in. And, you know, the oh, type absolutely. of district, um, because, you know, Northern Virginia and Henrico and Virginia Beach is really all 
the, that whole, uh, the Fertile Crescent, I believe it's called, like, that's all the same. And if you could win that, we win. I think my, my concern is this. I mean, Maryland, expensive. New York, expensive. Right now, Virginia is in the top five most expensive states for child care. Yeah. And that's a huge yeah. issue to those suburban voters. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it also worries me because, you know, you mentioned the suburbs. We, we relied on that. Right. I mean, what in the in the 90s, Republicans represented like Arlington. <laughs> you know, it's just well, it's yeah, interesting. It's, oh, absolutely. But I mean, it doesn't you don't have to go that far back to see, you know, Barbara Comstock in the 34th district yeah. representing McLean or in then the 10th district in Congress. Um, you know, Tim Hugo, you know, he represented that district yeah, for, for forever. Um, you know, so, you know, it's it's uh, it's a, a fairly recent phenomenon. You know, we had, um, you know, solely district uh, magisterial district in, in Western Fairfax that was held by a Republican until 2015. So, you know, we've had representation at the local level too. Pat Harity, um, sort of the, the, the last stand, the last man standing, but. Uh, he's been on the board for many years. Um, so it is not important. Tom Davis, you know, back in the day, yeah, Tom Davis. that far back, you know, the, the mid 2000s. So it's not as if, you know, it's ancient history. It's it's fairly recent. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's sort of like that scene in City Hall, you know, the, at the funeral. I can make it a palace again. We can make it yeah. a palace. You know, that scene with Al Pacino. Well, we can make this place Republican again. Um, you know, and I think we can do it. Uh, but I, I think that it's going to be a combination of savvy strategy, um, very careful listening to the electorate and, you know, democratic overreach. Would which, you encourage you taking a page out of Larry Hogan's book? Larry Hogan, you know, he didn't get down in the mud with the Second Amendment. He didn't get mm-hmm. down in the mud with uh, in regards to pro-life or pro-choice. He just said the economy, education, jobs. And he kept it at that. Do you think that's the template forward? Now, look, you could be pro-life, of course. You could be pro-Second Amendment. But a lot of that, you know, is dealt with at the federal level, especially like if you're running for the House of Delegates or whatnot. Would you, would you say that our best fo- way forward is to say the social issues, that's fine, but we can't get dragged into the mud on the culture war if we're going to try and win the suburbs? Uh, you know, I think it depends. You know, I mean, uh, you know, some of those issues are somewhat nuanced, right? I mean, you look at at, at the abortion issue as an example. Um, you know, yes, there, there's two sort of polls, right? There's pro-life and there's pro-choice. But you look at the polling on that, and you know, people have different views about the first trimester and the second trimester, yeah. and the third. So, so there's a lot of, you know, I guess you could call it the cross tabs. You know, when you dig into these issues, you know, there there isn't sort of a clear cut. You know, you're on this side or that side, black or white. Um, I, I do think, though, that it, it makes a lot of sense to look at the electorate, whatever you're running for, look at the electorate and find two or three issues that are going to animate your campaign. Um, they, maybe it is a social issue, right? I mean, I'll give you a good example. This is maybe not necessarily a social issue, but um, an education issue is sure. the stuff with Thomas Jefferson, the high school, yeah. you know, the changing of that test. That is a huge issue for a lot of parents, and it cuts across a lot of different demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an issue where I think not only are the Republicans right, but I, I mean, I feel like it's almost a moral issue. You know, it's not just sort of, you know, both sides, it's just kind of a decision. I mean, I, I think it's a, you know, a really deep seated issue that people feel very strongly about. Um, 
and finding those couple of issues that not only animate your campaign, but are easy to explain. You can say it on the stump and that, that, you know, people are going to react to, you know, if you, if you talk about the economy to a, a population that only cares about transportation, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. So I, I do think you're right in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, you've got to find those, those two or three animating issues. Um, what they are depends on the electorate. And I think one of the things SUV has, has advocated for is doing careful polling and careful research about what those issues are. You know, don't just, don't just run on abortion in an electorate that cares more about econ- the economy. Exactly. On the other hand, you know, don't talk a lot about um, uh, you know, just, uh, tra- you know, transportation in an, sure. in, a, in an area which cares more about, say, defense spending. You know? So it really is about just knowing your audience. Exactly. And, and knowing it at a, a semi-scientific level. Okay. Awesome. Now, as we, as we draw this conversation to a close, yeah. um, what's one thing you're reading and one thing you're watching right now? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, so uh, I've just finished a book. Uh, it's called Operation Mincemeat. I don't know if you... Okay. Um, it is about, and this is a really, this is a fascinating story. It's a true story. Uh, of how the British um, you, uh, essentially duped the Axis powers into uh, thinking that they were going to invade Greece uh, in World War II after the North African campaign, uh, when in fact they were going to invade Italy. So to dupe them, what they did was, and this is a remarkable story, they took a, a human cadaver, they, they faked a plane crash, they put the kid, they put all kinds of information. They, they, they handcuffed a briefcase to the cadaver with all kinds of oh fake documents. And it, they, they dropped him just so from a submarine uh, that the Spaniards picked him up. And they, of course they were, you know, Franco was sort of a buddy, but, or, you know, he was neutral, but, you know, fascist. So it ended up in the hands of the Nazis and they concluded, oh, they're going to invade Spain. They weren't prepared for the invasion of Sicily, uh, was where they, they invaded. So that's, wow. what I re- that's what I'm reading. It's a great story. It's true. Um, and, I feel like uh, that's a movie deal on its way or something. It was, in fact, yeah. The Man Who Never Was, you know, they, they made a Oh, okay. And uh, so, but uh, I, I, it's just a great story. And, and, and it's even better in the book. Um, yeah. And what am I? What am I watching? Um, well, a lot of football. <laughs> I can't help yeah. myself. Baseball's um, over, but I don't even believe this season counted. So, I, you know, I don't know what people are going to make of that. You know, are they going to put an? I, I guess they're going to put an asterisk against the. You know, I mean, there has to be. You know, I, I think you probably have to, but you know, I mean, I, I'd love to see the Rays. You know, do something. I especially don't want to see the Astros. Yeah. Uh, no. You know, so they I think they're on the cusp of elimination, but still. Um, <laughs> so I'm watching some of that. Uh, but, but frankly, most of the things that I'm watching are my kids. <laughs> OK, because <laughs> they get in all kinds of trouble if I'm not watching them. So that's true. We have a five year old and, and almost excuse me, almost a two year old. So, oh, my gosh. So you're yeah, yeah, your hands are full. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The fun <laughs> never ends. And I, I can't wait for them to go back to school. And to be perfectly frank, they can't wait to get back to school either. I mean, as a teacher, it's it's distance learning is incredibly hard. It is. It's it it's is. it's not healthy to be in front of a screen all day. But at the same time, <laughs> it's like what's you know, I mean, 
to bring up Larry Hogan again, he figured out how to go back. And so far, I don't think they've had any issues. So, no, no, I, I, they haven't. Uh, they, they are a model in that sense. And, you know, other schools, I mean, I know, you know, we have family up in New York and New Jersey and they're going back part time. So um, it seems like it can be done. I think done the right. hybrid's the best way to go. And Lab yeah. just decided it. So um, probably towards yeah. the winter time. I'm hoping. Right. Yeah. I mean, because my fear is COVID mixing with the flu and creating a new. Well, sure, sure virus and then then what because we can't afford that either well yeah no we we will have to be very vigilant but i mean they ran you know camp fairfax over the course of the summer um and they did it in these pods where the kids were all separated and i think they only had one teacher get sick and they just shut down that pod but everybody else kept going yeah oh i'm all for that i'm all for i've seen that yeah they they did a nice job so it can be done i mean they've proven it can be done but um, obviously, you know, vigilance is going to be the order of the day. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, thank you for joining sure, us. Sure, you bet. All right, you come bet. on anytime.